Welcome to the sermon podcast of Christ Community Church in Springfield, Missouri. Christ Community features life-giving, verse-by-verse teaching from the Bible. If you would like more information about CCC, you can visit our website at cccspringfield.org. We trust these messages will challenge and encourage you in being a faithful follower of Christ. I'm actually really excited to be here today. Uh, It was about a little over 25 years ago or so. I was uh, in college, and as a college student, I was, but what what I was thinking about in regards to today's message in Romans is that it was a little over 25 years ago. I was a college student sitting in an adult Bible study class going through the book of Romans, and I was relatively quiet and just sort of listened in, but it really, you know, grew me and stretched me and set a whole trajectory, you know, in terms of my life study of, uh, in God's Word, and it's, it's a profound book. So I remember those days, uh, and, and so I was excited to share that little tidbit, but I was also excited to put a, put a photo up here on the screen, because in a second I'm going to take us to a, a different realm, in, but I, this photo, when you look at it, you say, here, we're, we're sort of zoomed in, and you say, what, what do I see here? You know, I've got a, 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 looks like a motorcycle. I've got, you know, a disc brake system here, a control arm. Uh, I see an exhaust pipe wrapping around, a Husqvarna exhaust upper left, a suspension member there in the middle. Uh, looks like sort of knobby tires. You know, you might start thinking, well, I can sort of glean. It looks like a motorcycle. Looks like an off-road dirt bike of some type. Uh, and you're starting to look at all these details and put the, try to put the pieces together. But if we were to zoom out, and let's go ahead and zoom out on this photo, this opens up a whole different panorama here. And this is the other place I wanted to go just for a second. This is where, where I stood uh, about a month and a half ago on top of Engineer Pass in Colorado, Southwest Colorado. Um, and you can see all of a sudden now, not only do I verify, yes, indeed, it is this off-road dirt bike, but now I know where it is, sort of what's around it, its surroundings. I see incredible mountains off in the background, some other 14ers over there. Uh, this is the San Juan Range. It's just an awesome area. So you just get this incredible view, and, it's, and if you ever have a chance to go out there, I would encourage you to do so. But nonetheless, when you zoom into the details, you see these things, and you start putting it together, but you all, at times you need to zoom back out to see the big picture view. Uh, and really when we study the scriptures, I find a lot of times that's the way I have to approach it. I have to zoom in on the details, analyze a lot of details to pull things out, but then also make sure I'm zooming out to see the full picture, to see what the writer, the Lord is inspiring this, what is he trying to to state in terms of theme and purpose and overall view and context. Um, And so today, as we go and look at Romans, Kevin started it last week, and we're still sort of in these introductory statements. I thought before zooming in on the verses we're at today, I wanted to start out with a zoomed out view uh, prior to zooming in. So I want to rewind to the winter of 56 A.D., debated 56 or 57, 
Paul's on his third missionary journey. I think I got a map up here. I failed to point it out first service. He's, he's down here in the lower left corner. He's made his way all the way over the dark red line over to Corinth. And it's winter time. He's going to remain there before he starts journeying back. And I believe it's here that he's, he's feeling a call to, to start heading on back towards Jerusalem. And then he also has a, has a sense that he needs to to move on and, and go to Rome. He says in Acts 19, after I have been there, Jerusalem, I must also see Rome in 1921 of Acts. Uh, he's not 100% sure he'll get there, but that's where he wants to go. He feels the call to head that direction. So it was during these winter months in the town of Corinth, uh, a church that he had started some five years earlier, and now he's there for his second time, that he sat down with another guy that was going to do the writing for him, uh, Tertius, that was his name, and he does the writing. We find that out in the latter part of the book. And he begins to write this letter to this church or these believers in Rome. And, and you got to see the picture. He, he's never been to Rome. This was not a church that he had started on some previous missionary journey. But it was a, a group that he had heard a lot about. And he was aware of what was going on there. And it was a group of believers that he knew was located in the heart of the Gentile capital of the world, in that day, the Roman Empire. Um, so you then look at it and say, well, what's he going to write about? A lot of things that if you're sitting down writing to a group of believers that you're trying to encourage or motivate, what, what are you going to address? Maybe it's the social problems that, that plagued Rome, the city of Rome, that these Christians are having to interface and the persecution that's beginning to rise up there. Maybe that will be what he addresses. Maybe it's the city's rampant immorality or slavery that he will try to write to address and strengthen them and that to be prepared and know how to deal with that. Remember, Nero is on the throne of this imperial city uh, and there are a lot of issues surrounding that region and, and especially believers. Um, perhaps Paul would tell him some way to interface with that society. Interestingly, none of those topics are really the central theme and message of his letter. Because I believe he had a subject that transcended all those other issues. Those were real issues. But he knew there was something more bedrock, more foundational that he wanted to hit to really, truly strengthen these Roman believers. I'm going to put up a slide that is sticking with this zoomed out view, just as for you to sort of see. And I want to paint this picture so you get the, get a, get the full view. Let's go to the next slide. And you'll see here we've got verses from the introductory section of the book, verses from the conclusion of the book, and the 14 different chapters in the middle that have all kinds of details, you'll see some themes here. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Verse 5, to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his namesake. Verse 9, for God whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his son is my witness. Verse 15, so for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith 
to faith. Those are all introductory verses. He brings out this, this cool Greek word. He uses a Greek word, both the noun and the verb form that we translate gospel or preach, where we get the word evangelism or evangelize. He uses it five times in the intro. Then we get to the end, we have some similar themes. But I have written very boldly to you, 15.5, on some points, so as to remind you again, because of the grace that was given me from God, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest the gospel of God. Verse 18, For I will not presume to speak of anything, except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed from Jerusalem and round about as far as Illyricum. I always pause there. Illyricum, Illyricum, Illyricum. As far as Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. And then in his very last sort of closing benediction, now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel. Do you sort of hear a theme here? Again, you have five times those Greek words talking about either the noun form of the gospel, the good news, or the verb form to to preach and spread this good news. This is his focus, and this is what the book of Romans is about. And I want you to realize This isn't just the short form, 1 Corinthians 15, the handful of verses where he said, for I came and preached that Christ was crucified and raised from the dead, and and, and that, that, sorry, he died for our sins, that that, that very quick short form gospel. This is the full depths of the gospel. Thus he spends over 7,100 Greek words, 16 chapters to build his key points about what this incredible good news is and what the ramifications of it are. So that's sort of the zoomed out view. And now I want us to stand as we read the passage that we are going to zoom in on and try to sort of put both the zoomed out and the zoomed in view a little bit together by the time we close. So verse 8. First, I thank God through Jesus Christ for you all, you all, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers, making request, if perhaps now at last by the will of God I may succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far, so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles." I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. You may be seated. So Paul starts out here with a statement of priority. First, it's a Greek word, protos. 
It's a word I always sort of like it because as an engineer, we build prototypes. And many times our prototypes crash and burn. And there's many of you that are, have done things like this and you have to find out, well, it didn't work. Let's tweak it again. And eventually we get to the final thing. But nonetheless, protos here, he's starting out. First, I need to start by making sure you understand of first importance how immensely thankful I am for you all there in Rome. And he goes on and gives us a reason as to why he's so thankful for these believers. And he says that it's because their faith is being proclaimed throughout the entire world. So as I've been reading and studying this, I've been sort of in my mind denoting it as their world-renowned faith. And you say, well, why is it so critical for Paul to lead off here? I mean, he's going to have, this is a, it's going to be a doctrinal thesis that he's going to build that, that many students have read this book of Romans to study the depths, but he starts here with letting them see his heart towards them in terms of his thankfulness. And I have to believe that would be an, an incredible encouragement just to know the Apostle Paul is thinking of us and he's thankful for us, even though he's never been here before. He's aware of what's going on, and he's writing us, and so he's encouraging him, letting them see his heart towards them. And there's another point, though, I want to bring out, is that his thankfulness is focused on a condition uh, of their heart, a spiritual reality in their lives that is of profound importance, and namely, that is their faith. He says, I'm thankful because your faith is being proclaimed. One reason why I think he decided to home in on that is because faith will be a central part of his message in this book. Uh, this, This spiritual reality in their lives of profound importance is that their faith is being proclaimed. He knows they have this faith. Faith, this central point, it is what I sort of term the actuator or the the key responsibility of man. When it comes to this gospel message, you'd have to say, well, what is the responsibility of man in, in terms of the gospel? He's going to tell us a lot of things that the Lord did. He's going to say a lot of what, what Christ did for us. What's man's responsibility? He will dive into that, and he will make it clear. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes the verb form of faith. To the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. There's the noun form, pistis in the Greek. As it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. He goes back and he quotes the Old Testament. And when he gets to chapter 3, he gets, he's, he's, he's just cruising with this message of the responsibility of man to believe, and he makes it very succinct and clear. In 3.28, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So this idea of faith is going to be a central target of his And he starts off right off the bat saying, I'm thankful for you because your faith, you have this faith, and it's being proclaimed. Another thing I think that's sort of cool to note here, just as we stop and think about it, this group in Rome obviously was known for what they believe, what they believed. Their belief was having an impact on those around them. 
Uh, when Paul says it's being proclaimed throughout the world, we have to say, well, what all does that mean? Well, when they're there, this group of believers in the hub of the Roman Empire, living in a, in a culture of polytheism and all kinds of Greek gods and everything, and here's a group of people that begins to come up and, and grow in number that are they're talking about a monotheistic view of a singular God and a single man who visited their own nation, their empire, only, you know, you know several years before, and, he's, and people are beginning to say, this is a little different, this, this group of people, what they're believing, and so they're known for this, and it's having an impact, and it made me think about this, as we live our lives, uh, and, and, our, and we live out our faith, a proclamation essentially goes out. If we're actually willing to let people see what we really believe, you can hide what you believe, or you can make it fairly clear what you believe. And I'm not saying in a rude or disrespectful way, just this is what I believe. I was telling the first service, I had lunch with Isaac and some other engineers this week, and we were, a lot of them, I don't know if they're believers or not, young engineers, and we, were, we walked over to eat, and we're walking back, and we were talking about, God sort of, I mentioned something about direction and how you know, you know, different career opportunities and different companies you might want to work for and different things to look at. And I said, but in all this, you just pray and seek the Lord's direction. A little tidbit there. Let people hear that you believe there is a bigger picture to this thing. It isn't all just about you choosing what me, me, what I want. No, you, you turn it over to the Lord. Those are those little, little tidbits. And I've noticed through the years that guys I work with, they'll come up, they, they can begin to glean when you live like that. I have to believe that these people have lived in such a way that what they believed in was, was going out and being proclaimed. There, there's something unique here with this, this group, and they were known for it. I think of the impact of someone like a Daniel. In, in the, you remember Darius the king, and he's in the lions, and all this stuff. Here's Daniel. He's lived his life. Did people around him know what he believed? Sure does sound like it. The king comes after he's been in the lion's den overnight, and the king spoke to Daniel, saying, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you constantly serve, been able to deliver you from the lions? It sounds like his, his superiors got the picture. This guy serves a living God night and day, and now in the crux of the situation, did his God come through? Did what he believed, did, it, did, it, did that God come through? And sure enough, he did. So he, people were impacted by Daniel's faith. You think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They weren't afraid to let the, the world around them know what they believed. Even in the face of death, they sit there and they say, if it be so, Nebuchadnezzar, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if, it does, if he decides not to, we're still not going to bow down. They, he let them know, those three guys, they let them know what, what they believed, and Nebuchadnezzar was changed. He saw this, and he wrote letters. He wrote, let everyone in our empire praise the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Our faith, if we let people see it, it, has, it makes a difference. If we are that light on the hill. So Paul recognizes that the faith of these believers in Rome is having an impact. It was being proclaimed. 
And by the time you get to the conclusion of his letter, he has a similar sort of sentiment when he says in 1619, for the report of your obedience has reached to all, therefore I am rejoicing over you. Same sort of equation. I'm thankful and rejoicing over you because of your obedience. So now you've got obedience worked in here in addition to their faith. These folks in Rome were known for their faith and their obedience. My question is, what are we known for? What do we want to be known for? There's a lot of things that a person, a family, a church can be known for. The Bereans were known to be people more noble-minded. They would study the scriptures. These people in Rome were known for their faith and their obedience to God, their Father. You know, this is a question, are we known for what we believe? I'm not saying you can't, there aren't other good qualities to have, but I do think that what we believe and, and our obedience to our God should be one of the foundational elements that brings us together and then therefore becomes an example to those around us. You know, I was thinking, as you, as you think about the world looking and, and seeing some and seeing our faith and our obedience, it's sort of what is the image that we're, we're portraying out to the people around us. I was, I was laughing as I was thinking as well about businesses. Businesses go to great lengths for you to view them in a, with a certain image or light. I mean, they will, they will do a lot of work. I mean, they'll just turn on the TV, watch a football game. You'll see Beer ads are the most attractive people in the world. A guy, this beautiful woman, maybe two of them and a guy, and they're just on the beat. And they're just out, and, and they want you to believe if you have this beer, it's just, oh man, this is the image of what our beer is about and what you'll, your life will be changed because of this. And then you look at it, I mean, it's just rampant within the marketing area, but like, like cars, right? I like cars. And, I remember back, you know, there was always just Toyota and years ago, but then they decided, oh, no, 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 we need to make Lexus. We need to make Lexus. And we need the image that we're portraying to be, remember their catchphrase, the pursuit of perfection. That was, the, <laughs> that was the image that they wanted. That's what we're about. We're about the perfect automobile. And, you know, speaking of cars, I remember when, like, 91, I went on a trip with an exchange uh, student thing with, with a band in high school. And, and I had grown up in the United States, and it was sort of before, right, when the, right at the onset of the whole Lexus Acura push by the Japanese, but it, the, the luxury cars were always BMW and Mercedes. Those were the luxury cars. And you, I mean, you, you had to have some money to have Mercedes and BMW. They're the top of the cream of the crop. And I remember getting off the plane in Germany, walking out, and, and cars going everywhere, and horns honking. I'm looking out, there's Mercedes, Mercedes, Mercedes. Like, they're, and they're just painted like drab taxi cabs. I'm like, this isn't right. I mean, a, a Mercedes should never be a taxi cab. And then we got in one and had the, it had the manual. This is back in the day when you saw the manual roll down. I was like, a Mercedes with a, a, a manually operated window actuator? I was like, they would never sell this in the United States. And they didn't, and they never have. Why? Because what they want to be known for 
is the car company that is spare no expense, top dollar, luxury to the extreme. And, you know, when they'll try and they'll spend millions on it. Every once in a while, you'll see them make an error, you know, like one of the beer companies did recently, and their, their brand image has sort of been tarnished. But nonetheless, they try to, to portray an image. What are we portraying with how we live our lives on this earth? It, it matters. Our faith and our obedience to God, hopefully it permeates what we do, and therefore it's a reflection of who we are. So Paul starts out here with this first thing, I thank my God for your faith and the impact it is having. And he goes on in verse 9, for God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you always in my prayers making request, if perhaps now at last by the will of God I may succeed in coming to you. These, these verses are, are cool to stop and think about as well because if I come along to you and I say, hey, I'm praying for you, now I hope you can trust me and say, I, I trust you all, but the question we sometimes, are they really praying? Hey, how are you doing? Do I really care how he's doing? Uh, you know, I'm thankful for you. Are you really thankful for me? You know, this is the nature of our world with, with people, as fallen people, and we, we don't all know what we can trust or not. Well, Paul decides that this thankfulness before his God is so critical that he's going to now bring God himself into the conversation. He's going to say, I'm going to bring a witness to this equation. I'm telling you I'm thankful for you. Now let me bring God into the equation. Not just any God. This is the God whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel. He says, in my spirit. That's like the, the pneuma word in the Greek implying this is his innermost being service to God. He's bringing that God into the equation. The God whom he constantly serves. I'm drawing him in here and letting him be the witness. And people have heard of Paul We've heard of Paul, and one thing I, you know, as I was thinking about this aspect, he's trying to make the veracity of his statements, the truthfulness of his statements known, is that when you think of Paul, pre-Damascus Road or post-Damascus Road, he served his God with zeal. So if he's going to draw that God into this equation, you better believe that he means business when he says, I'm thankful for you, for your faith, and I pray constantly, unceasingly for you, hoping to come see you. We see this, Paul says this in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing, the exact same Greek word. This is a call to have an attitude and a posture of prayer in essentially everything that we do. And if you were to sort of look at it in more simple, practical terms, we just shouldn't allow a lot of time to go between when we're praying we're praying at work. I'm working on a circuit. Lord, help me figure this one out. I mean, it's, I'm turning over to do a schematic. Lord, help me figure this out. I'm going on a men's retreat. Lord, help us work this out. We're going on a hike yesterday. We had no, we had no clue where the trails led. Lord, help us with this. Lord, guide us to some neat views. We ended up in incredible vistas, and we're looking out, and we're thanking the Lord. Prayer should be a part of our everyday and continual life. And Paul is laying it out here that his heart is profoundly thankful for their faith and he is praying about this and praying for them constantly. As we serve our families, as we serve our church, 
heartfelt prayer is absolutely essential. And in his heart of hearts, Paul says, that he earnestly desired to come visit those believers in Rome. Unfortunately, he had been stopped in the past, but he trusts that the Lord, the Lord's sovereign over that. He says in 1522, I have often been prevented from coming to you. So we know he's wanted to come, and now he's saying, if perhaps now, at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. I like how Paul's phrased this because he's deferring to the Lord's will as to whether he will ultimately get to go to Rome. He's made it exceedingly clear he wants to go there. His heart is to go there. But he ends up leaving it at the will of God as a perhaps, if perhaps, God will actually get me there. And we know that God does get him there. In chains, but he gets him there. And he does have a witness when he arrives. Uh, And James makes this statement now that we too, as we walk on the earth, I'm going to skip down to verse 15 of James 4. It says, instead of saying, we're going to go here, we're going to go there, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. He says, if the Lord wills is what we should be saying, we will live and also do this or that. And Paul's living that very illustration out by deferring to the Lord. So, Paul recognized that he desires to go there if the Lord wills it. And I'm, I'm going to pause here just for a second because this is one reason. This is just my opinion. This is just what I'm about to say is just a theory of mine. This is one reason why I think he decided to pin the book of Romans, the winter of 57. He doesn't know for 100% sure that he will ever make it to Rome yet at this point. Jesus has not shown up at his bedside like he will later and say, you will also be my witness in Rome. That hasn't happened yet. He knows that he wants to go to Rome So if you're in a position where you want to go somewhere and you want to encourage and you want to strengthen a people and you don't know for certain you're going to get there, you may die in Jerusalem. Better write him a pretty good letter and cover the bases just in case you don't get there. But he's hoping he does get there. And Paul wants them to know as he goes on in verse 11, For I long to see you that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established. That is that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each by the other's faith. Paul longed to see them. And notice real quickly what he wants to do while he's there. Impart some spiritual blessing or gift upon them. Why, you would ask? So that they can be established, a Greek word meaning strengthened. A strengthening of believers. I actually sort of, as I was looking through this, I think one reason why he's led this off, we're only in like, you know, eight, nine, ten verses into this thing, getting out of the eleventh verse. This is one of his key purposes for the whole letter. He's wanting to strengthen and encourage these believers, to get them to grow as believers. Uh, so he's longing to go, and he's writing with this primary goal and purpose to establish and strengthen these Gentile believers. And we'll know by the time he gets to the end. He'll state it again. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel. You'd say, what's the tool that he's going to pull out of his toolbox to establish and strengthen a believer? The detailed gospel account in all of its glory and in all the depths of it. He's like, that's the tool I'm going to draw upon. And I love verse 12 here because 
Paul knows this encouragement and strengthening ultimately is going to go both ways. When he visits Rome, he wants to encourage them. When he's there, he knows and he makes it clear that I'm going to be strengthened and encouraged from you. It was a little like the men's retreat we did night before last. We're around the fire and we open it up for just discussion on what has the Lord done in your life to strengthen you? and what is, When has he shown up? You all have stories. And as we started to do that, it was amazing to listen to the stories. And iron, sharpening iron as one man's faith you know, sharpens another. It was, it was an incredible thing to listen to the stories. And one that, that I'll quickly make mention of is David. We see the same picture between two individuals in the Bible. In the Old Testament, David, you know David, goes and defeats Goliath as a teenage boy probably, and he's standing there. They bring him back. Abner brings him back before Saul. Saul's probably sitting there on some throne, and and David's standing there with Goliath's head in his hand. They they normally leave that out of the kids' books, by the way, the Bibles. They usually just sort of say, you know, David this. And and I usually tell my kids, oh, he was standing there with his head in his hand. And they look at my kids' eyes sort of get real. He had his head in his hand. And there's a reason why I think that actually is critical to the story. Because there's another individual standing there as well, off to the side. The prince of Israel, the next king of Israel. Standing there with his robe, his belt, his sword. And he's seen David stand here before his dad on the throne with the head of Goliath. And immediately the Bible says there's a, there's a knitting of the spirits. And you know, what is that? Well, if you know who this other individual is, it's Jonathan. And if you know his story, he was a lot like David with similar beliefs that he could go out as a single man with God's help and defeat the Philistines. And he did it in 1 Samuel 14. You can read that story. He had the same faith as David. He had the same convictions of the God of Israel that could defend and deliver them from even the biggest army. And when he saw David standing with the head of the Philistines' strongest guy in his hand, he's like, this is a guy just like me. And their souls were knitted, the Bible said. And he takes off his robe and he takes off of his, all of his armor and he takes off of his sword and he gives it to him. And you, you see this strengthening encouragement happening between those two right from day one. And then you fast forward, David on the run, remember from Saul trying to kill him. You guys know this story, I hope. Saul hunts him down and hunts him down. And guess who? Guess who is his almost strongest supporter and strengthening agent? Jonathan. Jonathan. Now David became aware that Saul had come out to seek his life while David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horish. And Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David at Horish and encouraged him. Hebrew word meaning strengthened, made strong. Encouraged him in God. Thus he said to him, Do not be afraid, David, because the hand of Saul, my father, will not find you, and you will be king over Israel. And you better believe that this strengthened and encouraged David like no other. These two guys had similar face, and they sharpened one another and encouraged one another. So we, we take this, now we zoom back out for just a second as we close. We see Paul writing to believers in Rome. Thankful for their world-renowned faith that is being proclaimed. He's letting them see his heart and his prayer for them. His desire to go to be with them and come to ultimately 
uh, do God's will if he, if he gets them there. But his purpose and his goal, ultimately, is to preach the detailed gospel account to them with the result that, number one, they would have some spiritual gift or blessing imparted upon them. Number two, that they would be established and strengthened. And number three, that they would encourage one another, sharpening one another. But I want to ask a question here as we close out. Why write a letter concerning the gospel to a people that already believe the gospel? And not just believe the gospel, they're, they're world-renowned faith. They are, their faith is going out. But I'm going to decide I'm going to write, I'm going to write not just a small letter, Paul's largest letter of all, the longest of all of his epistles, talking about the gospel. This is a question that I think brings, in my mind, the zoomed out view of Romans and it brings it back and ties it to this zoomed-in view we were just reading about in verses 8 through 15. And it brings them into an incredible harmony. You'd say, well, what do you mean by this? Well, let me try to give you, make, see if you can think the way I am on this. Well, if you wanted to impart a deep spiritual reality and a blessing firmly, to firmly establish and strengthen a believer, to give them truly deep roots... What message would you write to them about? What would you focus on? How to deal with immorality? Might be good for them to hear, but is it going to make them incredibly deeply rooted, strong believers in their faith? And, and when you think about what you, would, what you would focus on, how would you teach it? I think Paul would answer, he would say this, teach them the details of the gospel and all the ramifications of it. If I want to strengthen and make you go the extra mile, you need to think through, well, how is it that one man's sin resulted in all the sin on the earth? How is it that one man's righteousness resulted in all, all these to be declared righteous? How, all these questions that you have to dive into and think, that's when you as a believer have deeper and deeper and deeper roots. The book of Romans is full of disclosure, a deep dive into the living heart of the gospel. What it is, what does it mean, how does it work? And it answers some monstrous questions for us as believers that are critical for us to understand about the gospel and its intersection with our lives. What is the critical element of our salvation? What is man's responsibility to the good news of Christ and the gospel? How is the sin problem handled by the work of Christ? And, and flush that fully out, or just gloss over it. How does the fall of man and Adam play into the gospel? What about sin in the life of the believer? What about the flesh and our sinful tendencies? What about the Old Testament? Big question. Have we now shifted New Testament, Paul, that we're heading in a whole different... Old Testament's meaningless? Well, Paul's going to write about that in Romans. Got to understand that. What about the law? What's the intersection there? Is it replaced? Is it removed? Is it eliminated? What is the law's purpose? How does one ultimately obtain righteous standing before the Lord? Is it law? 
Is it faith? He's going to answer those. And another huge one, especially in their day, but I'm here to tell you it's still big today. What about the Jews? What about Israel? How does it work now that the door has been opened for the Gentiles in this good news gospel? He's going to answer that. And the list just goes on and on. It's a huge, big questions. And they require deep and detailed answers if a believer is to be strengthened. Paul was praying that this book would produce some spiritual blessing in the hearts of the first century believers and he would strengthen them. I'm here to tell you that his letter, this one epistle, has inspired and it, as it's been breathed by the Holy Spirit and it has produced incredible spiritual blessing upon countless believers throughout the 20 centuries since it was written. The impact on guys like Augustine, Luther, Wesley, those are big names. But what about right here? What about last year? What about 100 years ago? Romans has been a central and a massive import for people. One writer said Paul's letter to the Christians in Rome is his masterpiece. Luther said this is the chief book in the New Testament and the purest gospel. John Knox, who was a modern American professor, said unquestionably the most important letter ever written. A.M. Hunter, a Scottish New Testament professor, this was Paul's magnum opus. And several scholars that I was looking at, one of them called it the greatest letter in the literature of the world. Do you think it had, it had some impact? Do you think his prayers that it would strengthen, encourage, and impart some spiritual blessing to the church? Do you think it had, it had an impact? Oh, I think it did. And we sit here today in the heartland of the largest Gentile kingdom on earth. We sit here today as believers in Jesus Christ. We are called the Bible Belt of this great nation. We're known for that. Like, oh, that's out in the Bible Belt. That's what we should be known for. What would Paul have written to us if he was writing to us as he was writing to that hub of the Gentile world at the time? And they had faith. We're over here thousands of years later in the heart and than the hub of the Gentile world, and we have faith, that's why we're all sitting here. What would he write? What would he say if he was standing right here on the stage? He'd probably be a little less wordy than I am, but anyway, he, he would come and he would tell you the details of the gospel. Well, I guess not, 7,100 words and 16 chapters. That's probably a little bit more wordy than I am now. But anyway, you know, the thing is, is that we have to ask their question, Will we go there in this study of Romans? Will you be willing to be challenged and go the extra mile in the study? Are we going to dive in the way Paul's going to dive in? Will we have the diligence to walk with Kevin through it as he's teaching us, challenging us week in, week out? Or will we come once a month? I learned, I learned a little bit that day and got a little bit. I'm telling you, this book is chalked full of doctrinal truths that strengthen and grow a believer. We have to be willing to dive in and go the extra mile. You say to me, oh, I've read the gospel. I've said it even to myself. Oh, I got the gospel down. You know what that means to me if I say that? That means it's time to open it up and reread it again. Because I, I, the minute you think you got all of Romans down 
And this whole picture of the workings of the God, it's time to go reread it, my friends. Because that's when you know, uh, you probably haven't thought through all the depths. I mean, you think of Romans 11 when he says, oh, how unsearchable are the Lord's ways. Unfathomable is the mind of the Lord. And, it, and, and he just starts pouring out and, and right in the heart of, God, of the gospel presentation. He said, you'll never, you'll never expose or get to the end of, of the depths of this. And so that's how we have to approach it. By the time you get to Romans 15, 15, he says, but I have written very boldly to you on some point so as to remind you again. That's his conclusion at the end. I'm writing to remind you again, very boldly, a lot of text about it. So we have to be able to go, go with him. Go the extra mile. Dive into this book. Put it in your hearts and into your minds. Memorize key portions of it. Read it ahead of time before Kevin opens it up or myself or Tyler, whoever's teaching on it. Because as you dive into it, you will be strengthened and you will be encouraged. Like I was 25, 26 years ago on a whole different, I was like, this is incredible what God has done for us as believers. Thank you for listening to the Christ Community Church Podcast. 